If I told you in 2019 about a city where shops were closed, schools were shut, parks were locked up, and people were banned from going into one another's homes. A city where the police had the right to ask people where they were travelling to, and to send them home with a towel between their legs and a fine in their pocket. Now, I'm pretty sure that you would think I was talking about somewhere in China, Russia, or North Korea. But of course, this was the case in the whole of the UK in March 2020. We were told that we had no choice but to surrender our liberty to reduce the death toll from COVID-19. The debate about the relative merits of different lockdown measures can become incredibly polarised, and I don't really want to talk about that here. Instead, I want to focus on the age-old debate between security on the one hand and liberty on the other. Are these really two opposing objectives? And if they are, has COVID-19 fundamentally changed the trade-off between them? I'm Paul Dolan. I'm a professor of behavioural science at London School of Economics, and this is the Duck Rabbit Podcast. I've spent years researching behaviour and happiness. I know what makes us feel good, but now I'm interested in finding out whether our polarised culture might be making us feel bad. Just like with the Duck Rabbit illusion we spoke about before, people see things differently. But now I want to see if we can find a way through it all so that we can move away from entrenched views towards more ambivalence, or in the very least, greater acceptance of difference. Today, does more security mean less freedom? And has a pandemic fundamentally changed the relationship and trade-off between them? Has it changed our relationship with the state and what it can legitimately tell us to do and not to do? I'm going to be joined by two people with very different views. One is the infectious disease model at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, Professor Graham Medley. He's also a member of the scientific group that advises the government about COVID-19. He was one of those who warned the politicians just how bad it would get. The other is the Conservative MP for Wickham and Deputy Chair of the COVID Recovery Group, Steve Baker. He believes that lockdowns have caused long-term harm, especially in relation to the rights of individuals. Once again, I'm going to be joined by my old mate, Rory Sutherland. He puts the academic work I do on behavioural science into practice as his job as Vice Chair of Ogilvy, a big advertising agency. Good afternoon, Rory. Nice to see you again. Oh, it's a joy. Listen, today we're going to be talking about security and liberty. Obviously, a very timely topic during the course of a pandemic in particular. I just challenged really by whether and to what extent there's a trade-off between them, and especially whether that trade-off or the relationship might have changed during the course of a pandemic, and whether it's fundamentally shift the relationship between the individual and the state. So it's kind of quite a lot in there, but just open that however you wish, really. No, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think under normal circumstances, we can proceed fairly much under the illusion that individual freedom is paramount, provided you don't directly harm someone else. When you have something highly complicated like a pandemic, of course, the harm is not direct. It's much, much more complicated because, uh, you know, five people can go and have a party. Uh, it's rather like a butterfly effect in, you know, in the sense that five people can have a party somewhere. No one gets particularly ill or has unpleasant symptoms. And indeed, none of their family does. But it causes someone, uh, you know, two weeks later to die. And so that makes the usual kind of very um, clear line in the sand between what is an individual right and what is a responsibility. Kind of a bit more nuanced and complicated, I suppose. Let's move on to hear what our WhatsApp group have to say about all of this. I think it was right that we would have lost our liberty for large parts of last year and a significant part of this year to ensure that we're kept safe. I think it's imperative now that the government uh, maintains its grip 
over this this virus which we seem to be winning and ensures that only slowly are our liberties restored. I think that the pandemic is such a real and present threat to people that the that the restrictions on liberty firstly are justified but also that they won't continue that it is like a literal pandemic where certain unusual rules apply. We absolutely live in a period of increasing unfreedom because governments very rarely give up powers that they gain for themselves. Even in times of emergency, often those powers are then used. It's easy to frighten people into thinking, oh, there's no option, you know, if, if you want to be kept safe. But ultimately, you know, we need transparency and you know, collective agreement to find the balance. Any thoughts on those comments, Rory? Yeah, it's very interesting because I noticed that a few of them spoke of liberty as if it's something you enjoy day to day. But I must admit, I'd never seen it like that. You know, I would have accepted, had I been alive during World War II, that you uh, accept a temporary loss of liberty in order to guarantee liberty in the future as a general principle. And some of those people were speaking of liberty as if every day of lost liberty is kind of a loss. and. I may be wrong, it's just subjective, but I'd never really seen liberty in that way. I suppose fundamentally it's whether one views liberty as a means to an end, which would be the other consequences that come from the expression of freedom, which would include happiness and well-being and all these other things, which which actually, by the way, there are some data on international comparisons of happiness that show that um, countries that have um, elections and freedoms and rights and stuff are generally happier when you control for all of the other factors that can go into those regression equations. So there tends to be a positive effect of freedom. Um, or whether you see freedom as a fundamental right in itself, and then I guess losing it for even a minute or an hour or a day would be a violation of your rights. And therefore, it does matter whether it's a short-term effect. Like, you know, it would still be significant even if it were only over the short term. But listen, let me ask you this. So as a behavioural scientist i guess i would call you that too is when the the subcommittee of sage um, the behavioral science group were thinking early on in the pandemic about how to get more people to engage with the social distancing measures and the compliance with the restrictions there was a, an argument and i'm going to actually read read the quote out from their minutes and see what you make of this a substantial number of people still do not feel sufficiently personally threatened it could be that they are reassured by the low death rate in their demographic group, although levels of concern may be rising. And then they go on to recommend the perceived level of personal threat needs to be increased among those who are complacent using hard hitting emotional messaging. That makes me feel very uncomfortable. I don't know how you feel about that. Uh, I think to be candid about it, there was a degree um, of propaganda in that the amount of television coverage over younger victims was probably unrepresentative of the numbers. Uh, I don't think the television coverage of victims was, shall we say, statistically representative of the demography. I get that about telly and media and radio and whatever. They're always sensationalising things. They're always stoking fear. That's sort of part of what they do. I'm talking about subcommittee of stage containing behavioural scientists making those recommendations. That feels to me to be something quite different. Let's hear from Professor Graham Medley. He's an infectious disease modeler at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. I was feeling um, 
you know, sick from, from the beginning of February. Um, the first indications that we had of what was coming out, what was happening in China were scary. Um, and just the fact that China chose to close down its con economy um, rather than face um, the epidemic, I think really tells you, you know, that very early on people realized that this was going to be um, going to be a very um, difficult time. And of course, we didn't know what in fact, it was going to happen in the United Kingdom. We didn't know whether or not we were going to have the epidemic. Um, and so uh, up until the 23rd, um, when it was announced that we would be locking down, it wasn't sure that we would be, and it wasn't sure you know, what was going to happen. So, yes, um, I was you know, um, quite concerned about what might happen. Yeah, it's really interesting you mentioned, obviously, what Wuhan did, what China did. Um, do you think that that set the tone for for what followed I, I think that when China did it it was quite surprising uh, that they would do it I remember having coffee with a friend um, mid-February who was due to go to um, Siena in um, in April um, and he, he was saying oh it'll all be over by then and I was just <laughs> my head in my hands and I, no it, Alan it will not all be over by then you are not going um, yeah to Siena. And, you know, if, if it's bad enough, the prospect of it is bad enough that China turns off its economy rather than face it, then that really suggests that trying to get through it the way that we did with the 2009 swine flu, um, you know, where you just say, right, we're going to have an epidemic now. Everybody brace yourselves. Um, really wasn't wasn't going to be either very pleasant or it wasn't going to happen. Had nobody else in the world locked down, would the United Kingdom have locked down? I think is a is, a, is an interesting question to think about. The fact that everybody else did lock down, you know, I, th I think that did that have an influence on the decision making in the in the United Kingdom? Again, something worth considering. I think. So moving on to the liberty security question, I suppose I'll ask the direct question maybe about whether you're concerned in any way about some of the powers that might be within the Coronavirus Act that would kind of, I don't know, overstep the, the role of the state in restricting liberties. Yeah, I'm, so I'm not a politician. I'm not a political scientist. You know, I'm a natural scientist. But I am by nature you know, the sort of person that, that doesn't like to see governments imposing rules. So, yes, I am concerned and I was surprised that, in fact, um, the House of Commons agreed these measures without much argument and that I think it was only 85 MPs who voted against the last, mm. last lockdown measures. So I thought that there would be more... Um, especially in terms of, of regulation um, without, if you like, compensation. I mean, clearly, if you're going to instruct people that they cannot work, uh, then fairness demands and justice demands that, that you make compensation for that, mm. um, especially when it's done with such short notice. Um, um, so, yeah, I, and, and of course, we all know that governments are once powers are introduced, you know, rich, you know, an income tax is always the, the, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, right. the example given. Uh, it, they are hard, harder yeah. to remove once they're there. 
It's interesting you mentioned about the only 85 MPs voted against it. I would have expected much more dissent, disagreement, discussion than appears to be the case, at least. That there's been considerable amount of what I would consider to be groupthink, I guess, amongst the politicians, amongst some of the scientists, in terms of like knowing what the right course of action. I've been struck by how so many people on the face of it are very clear about what we ought to be doing. Um, and yet, I mean, I don't know how anybody could be, given all of the trade-offs that we've been making. Yeah, but I think in the end, there's a, there's a clear... From, so from my perspective, the scientific perspective is that we are in the middle, and we're still in the middle, of a very nasty epidemic that will kill hundreds of thousands unless we do something about it. Now, now we've got vaccines, then of course that changes the picture. Um, but you know, back in November, before it was clear that we would have a vaccine, then then that was the stark reality, was that um, if you didn't do something, then hundreds of thousands of people would die. Thinking of time as well, I'm just sort of wrapping up on this freedom security thing. I'm going to, again, sort of ask you to, to speak outside of your comfort zone and areas of expertise and knowledge and just wonder, and just this is sort of personal view on whether whether you do think that the relationship between the individual and the state has changed in any fundamental way as a result of the last year. Yeah, but I think I think everything. I think a little awful lot has changed. I mean, I think the relationship between you know individuals and work, between organisations, between family members, you know, a lot has changed, and probably at the same time, a lot hasn't changed. And we and it's you know it's a you know, it's a fool who will say what the world would look like in five years' time, but I'm I'm pretty sure you'll be able to see the scars of this. Um, so yes, uh, absolutely, I'm sure that the relationship the state and individual has changed hugely, and whether that's for the better or the worse, I don't know. I think the fact that we did lock down, the fact that the government took took measures to prevent citizens dying, uh, and took measures which were which were quite dramatic, and in some ways a complete anathema to what governments usually do. Um, I think that's something to ponder about. You know, is that something to do with the fact that since nine, you know, in the hundred years since since nineteen eighteen, is it about is that about human rights? Is that about you know the fact that women have got the vote in between? You know, I've no idea. You're a social scientist. You'll be able to you know pick that apart. But you know, in the past, governments did not um, react in the way to prevent death. That was Graham Medley. What do you make of what he had to say? It's very rare that you can be purely scientific about something. In fairness, you didn't have much political opposition from the opposition, and the public generally supported them. I think the public were right. To be honest, most of the effects were achieved through voluntary compliance. I think we ought to remember this. People were basically obeying the rules because that's what most Brits do. And so I think most people, because they were willing to go along with the thing for voluntary self-interest reasons, regarded a loss of liberty which applied to a small minority of people they saw of, they saw as irresponsible. I don't think that sort of uh, legislation arouses much public horror. Okay. If you demanded something completely unreasonable of, of people, uh, different matter. But in this instance, people were mostly happy to go along with it through perfectly natural self-interest and a reasonable sense of altruism. Let's hear from Steve Baker. He's a Conservative MP for Wickham and Deputy Chair of the COVID Recovery Group. Very early on when we 
set up the COVID recovery group, we did a big chart showing what items we thought we wanted to talk about, and that was about September. But by then, it had become extremely clear that the public were not very alive to civil liberties, not merely for their own sake, but for what they mean in all of our lives. Like, So, for example, closing shoe shops right now means kids are going to school with ill-fitting shoes, and we seem to be completely blind to that. So, uh, yeah, it's it's been really horrific and very surprising that the public are being terrified of the disease, sometimes not reasonably so, because of government action. People have been demanding, really, that they wanted to comply. And you can see how tyranny could happen. You mentioned terrified. And there's no doubt that the emotion of fear has been let's put it mildly, tapped into yep. <laughs> and arguably magnified in order to get people to comply. That's a little troubling. And I wonder whether sort of ethical bases or justification for that comes from and why that hasn't, on the face of it, been properly factored into the decision-making process. I was really horrified when I saw the paper from the behavioural group, was it Spy B, saying the options for increasing public compliance, having on it uh, increasing people's personal sense of threat. It's really horrified. The idea that a government, a conservative government, would set out to frighten the public deliberately as a matter of policy is genuinely horrific and should never, ever, ever happen. So I was really surprised by that. And it's hardly any wonder that the public therefore now are quite worried. So, for example, this morning I listened to an advert on LBC just before I gave them an interview. I listened to this person, you know, the professional actor, using a quaver in their voice as they said, the virus could be in the air. And it sort of it is strictly true. The virus could be in the air. But we also know that the scientific evidence is that it's most unlikely you'll catch the virus when you're outside. Yeah, because it's been interesting, you know, as you and I have discussed before, whatever the Conservative government has suggested by way of lockdown measures, the the left have suggested more. I mean, that's literally been, almost without exception, the response. So um, the, the only opposition to policy at the moment seems to be coming from the COVID recovery group. It's not a very comfortable position to be in as a Conservative MP. Um, obviously, I burned quite a lot of capital being um, the leader of the, I have to say the B word, the Brexit bit, the the ERG as we were leaving the EU. So I would very much have personally very much have preferred not ending up being a leading voice on this fight as well, but I just felt it needed to be done. But what seems to have happened is in this spectrum between freedom and safety, which people construct, perhaps it exists sometimes, Everybody seems to, on the left especially, seems to have just stampeded across in the direction of safety. But yeah, the left have gone for safety over freedom. I guess insofar, I mean, I suppose insofar as there's a trade-off, of course, lots of people will try to explain away any trade-off between security and freedom, right? Because they don't really want to be making hard choices. One of the phases, the other way around to what you just put, of course, is we can't have freedom without security. And I guess that would be a legitimate consideration in the current context. Yeah, freedom and security, we require both. And, you know, we must go on into the uncertain and the unknown using what reason we have to plan as best as we are able for both freedom and security. If I recall, that is how the open society and the enemy and its enemies end, something like that. And that's, that's a really hard problem. And in a sense, in politics and public policy, we're always dealing with really hard problems. And that's why I'm quite, if I may say so, I'm quite excited about the work you've been doing, because 
we need a framework within which we can get some numbers and some ideas around hard choices and trade-offs. And even at the very beginning, the point you've made about checklists, we need to make sure people have checked down their list and made sure that they've not become blind to consequences of what they're doing. Can I return to this liberty security issue? I just wonder whether, to what degree, and of course we can never predict the future anyway, but, but, but especially not during a time of crisis, but I just wonder whether and to what extent you think any of that willingness to forego liberties in response to a pandemic and the fear associated with it will stick and whether we fundamentally change the relationship between the individual and the state through this process. I think the Tory party does love liberty and doesn't enjoy living like this. But are there forces within the state who are insulated from the costs of lockdown who quite like it? Yes, I see it all the time. I think people whose incomes can, they can take for granted off the taxpayer, who quite like working from comfortable homes, I think do quite like it. And you can see it when you have conversations like this one over Zoom. It's not that they're not nice people. They're lovely people. I'm sure they're charming people with the best of intentions. But nevertheless, there's something about the way they're speaking which radiates a sense of being relaxed with where we are and what's happening and that, that it's not troubling to them. Whereas I suspect that whenever anyone speaks to me, it's obvious that I'm deeply aggravated and vexed by living like this. That was Steve Baker. What do you make of his comments? I'm interested in this point that he thinks that there was probably too much fear and that therefore the fear then caused economic consequences, which ultimately would lead to a worse outcome than if the fear had been perhaps slightly underplayed. I think it's interesting because I think we naturally tend to overplay fear of things like this in our own heads and probably for evolutionary reasons, that we've evolved always to consider what's the worst that can happen rather than I expect I'll just luck it out in conditions like this. A very, a very large amount of this is impossible to predict. So it's very, very dubious criticising government behaviour in a situation where what would have been the optimal behaviour uh, would only have become apparent with the benefit of hindsight. And so a government that acts on the precautionary principle here strikes me as doing the right thing, actually. But I do agree with him in the sense that the other costs have probably, and by which we mean health and mortality costs, by the way, it's not just economic costs, but economic costs also have health costs, so I accept that. I think it's probably fair to say that they haven't been adequately accounted for. Listen, let's move to our... Uh... Twitter survey. As you know, every week we've been putting out on Twitter some questions. And interestingly, this has been by far the most popular set of questions. Um, it's probably quite telling given the circumstances under which we're living. But um, the first question was, which statement best describes your views? And people have a choice between two options. A, restrictions on behaviour during a pandemic are justified whenever they reduce mortality risks. Or B, some personal freedoms are important even if they result in high mortality risk during a pandemic. Uh, what do you think? What do you think the split across those two response options was? This is basically about whether freedoms are only important because of their consequences, or whether they fundamentally matter in their own right. Yeah, my hunch would be the majority of people would believe that freedoms are important even if they impose some level of cost on others. 
Right. And that was actually what, what we found. About 70% of people thought that freedoms were important, even if they increase mortality risks. And you might argue, by the way, you might argue that a world in which everybody answered A would be nonsensical because my freedom to drive a car undoubtedly increases mortality risks for myself, my family and for others. And so, you know, you could you could make the perfectly reasonable argument that, you know, if, if your only purpose in life was to reduce mortality risks, then essentially, you know, everybody would be living in some sort of plastic bubble most of the time. Yeah, it is interesting. You do what I mean, exactly. And that's, that's what you want. We actually want people to give different answers to this question, right? I'm not exactly sure in what proportion. But you know, 7030 might feel like it's about it's about right. Thank you, Rory. You know, once again, I've still got a few unanswered questions about all of this. And probably the best way to answer them is to talk to someone who knows about this stuff. So before reaching any conclusions, I'm going to talk to Julia Black. She's a professor of law at the LSE and soon to be president of the British Academy. Julia, listen, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. Pleasure. Good to be with you always, Paul. Uh, always. Thank you so much. So listen, we're, we're um, going to be discussing the security, liberty, tension insofar as there is one. I just want to go back mm-hmm. to, well, it's over a year ago now when the pandemic was first hitting these shores. Um, so sort of personal level, were you, were you personally scared at all by what was, what seemed to be happening? I was scared as to what lockdown would be. And I think I was more scared about being locked down than I was about getting COVID. Um, And in fact, I've never personally been particularly scared about getting COVID. It's not because I don't think I would be subjectively immune to it, that I would get any worse than anybody else. But just looking at the risks of contracting it, when you compare it against the risks of doing any other things, it wasn't, yeah, the risks were high, but it wasn't such that you were automatically going to get COVID when you went out. And if you did, you were automatically going to get hospital. So I wasn't so scared, as it were, about being ill, but I was more nervous about, well, what, what will it mean to be in lockdown? What do you mean I can't leave my house? And how much pasta and loo roll do we need? You know, the rest of the country, <laughs> I can't leave the house forever, you know. And just, you know, we all will really get to love lentils. Um, so I was actually really nervous of, or scared or fearful or anxious around those threats, talk about liberty security, to my, uh, my ability to move and just to interact in the way that I always had done. And I was also fearful for the family, but also for my kids. I mean, my kids are older teenagers. They're, they're not tiny. And for them, all of a sudden, to, to be told, that's it, your life is actually now going to turn off. We're going to press the switch. You know, my daughter was going through uh, sixth form. She had a day and a half's notice that her school life was going to end. That was it. Done. Mm. And it was that dramatic turning the switch, which I myself found quite difficult to, to manage and come to terms with, rather than I'm going to get sick and I might end up in hospital and I might die. Just coming to the security liberty issue, I wonder, just reflecting on the degree of compliance that there's been to these measures over the last year. Have you been surprised in any way about the extent to which people have willingly complied with these measures? I have. No, I really have, actually. So if you'd asked me, um, you know, before any of this happened, if you say to people, basically for a year and a bit, you will not be able to leave your house, you will only be able to meet with different configurations of people in a very, very restricted way. Hmm. Uh, it will last for a year or more, and people were willingly to comply. 
and more to the point they were overcompliant uh, in some cases, then I would have just said, no, we can't, we can't tolerate that. You know, it's not the kind of society that can tolerate that. We're too used to our individual freedoms. So do you think this has now fundamentally changed the relationship between the state and the individual? Do you have any sense in which this has changed what at least governments think they're able to do in order to get us to change our behaviours in certain ways in response to a health threat or some other crisis? Really interesting question. I think one of the one of the things that that we know about COVID is that it has uh, revealed fractures and fissures in societies that were present and it has exacerbated a number of them. And if you look around the world, one of the things that we knew going into COVID uh, was a decline of democracy. So if you look at, uh, you know, Freemouth's monitor of democratic regimes around the world and things, since 2006, twice as many countries have become less democratic as have become more democratic. And I think one of the concerns that I would have is the question of normalization. So you've had all of these powers come in play. So we start to very subtly change our sense of appropriateness of that balance to to the main theme between liberty and security. My concern is that that then becomes that's that resets that resets our calibration of what's normal and what in terms of, of restrictions on our liberties, which enables more liberties to be taken from us than we would have allowed in peacetime. I suppose my own personal take on this is that I've always not always, but I guess I've thought of the state largely as a benevolent force but and i guess you know british people are largely trusting of the state aren't they at least more so than maybe in other countries like the us but maybe we've become too trusting and complacent and that aligned with the fear this is almost like a sort of sweet spot of an accumulation of government powers that they're going to be quite yeah. resistant or slow to give back am i am i overly concerned i mean i'm starting to sound a bit paranoid when i when i hear myself say that but is there am i getting paranoid i mean well well what i find really interesting here is is a kind of a recalibration as it were of the relationship between liberty and security so under a normal model of sort of western liberal conceptions and human rights they're they're vertical in in kind of human rights speaks so they're rights of the individual against the state and the the default is maximum amounts of, of personal liberty which are curtailed we can tell only to the limited extent which is necessary to pursue some kind of state collective goal. You know, so national security is the, the kind of the limiter, as it were, of, of liberty. And that's usually conceived of in terms of, of literal military senses of national security. So there's a war, there's a crime, there's a violence, okay, with extended perhaps now into cyber. But you have that expansion of liberty to the extent limited by the collective needs of the government and the state in that national security sense. And kind of what we're seeing shifting now in the sense of public health security, national security, is that actually public health security is a precondition for you to be able to exercise your liberties. The world isn't safe to travel around in until everybody's vaccinated. So there's a kind of the collective there. And what's happening now is that with that precondition, as it were, well, we have to have our public health security in place for you to be able to go and exercise your own liberties so that you don't get sick from other people uh, and you don't make other people sick. 
is we've kind of reversed that. Do you see what I mean? So I, that's so pretty interesting. constrained by security, but security is a pr- collective security as a precondition for the exercise of individual liberty. And that takes us much more into kind of a, a authoritarian collectivist mindset, very chi- you know, China kind of mindset ideology, which is the priority of the collective over the individual. Yes. And so I just worry about that shift and if we're seeing that. And, and if we are, then where are the constraints on the pursuit of collective security? Again, I've really enjoyed trying to work my way through this issue of security versus liberty. I think I feel like I've been on a personal journey, especially over this last year. Maybe I didn't realise just how much of a libertarian I am. Over the last year, governments have responded like never before to the risk of dying. And maybe this is because we've become more civilised. But it might also be because we've become more scared of death. Terror management theory posits that the fear of death drives much of human behaviour. It leads us to endorse certain worldviews, such as the belief in the afterlife. And that gives us a sense of symbolic immortality. It also endorses the general idea that human life is a protected or sacred value. If we start thinking about trade-offs for other attributes of value, such as income, mental health, or even education, then they start to be seen as impossible and immoral. And if you seek to quantify the value of human life, well, then this evokes a really strong feeling of moral disgust in other people, and you risk a considerable degree of social disapproval. There's no doubt that this narrative to preserve life was bolstered by how China responded to the coronavirus. We actually didn't have a great deal of choice to follow what other countries did once China had set the lead. In fact, the public and media wanted us to follow too. And and, and really, honestly, I have no idea. I don't know whether that was the right thing to do at the time. If the NHS was facing being overwhelmed and facing an existential crisis, then maybe it was the right thing to do. The world was certainly uncertain at that time, But that makes anybody who has any certainty in what to do a little suspect, I think. I am certain that the uncertainty, and especially about the effects of some monumental decisions, like shutting down most of the economy and closing schools and universities, should have meant that we would have been hearing lots of different arguments and viewpoints. And yet the only narrative in town was the harm caused by COVID. Even sensible suggestions like focused protection were shouted down. And just like Julia, I was more fearful of the policy responses to COVID rather than I was to COVID itself. And not just for myself, but to other people, to other vulnerable populations like children and young people. And whilst we're on the subject of fear, I'm also certain about something else. I'm certain that it's wrong to increase the perceived level of personal threat by using hard-hitting emotional messaging. Using such messaging to increase the salience of our behaviour on other people's risks is entirely legitimate. Explicitly manipulating people to make them more scared is not. As a behavioural scientist, I've long been interested in the idea of nudging people to behave differently, but I firmly believe that we must be honest about the facts of our nudges. Fear is not like a tap that you can turn on and off. Once you turn it on, it's really hard to turn it off again. And I think we see that legacy more than a year after COVID first hit these shores. We see it amongst policymakers too, and they're at the age when existential dread is at its highest, around the 50s. All of this has played into the situational blindness that we've witnessed. By this, I mean a very narrow set of policy objectives have been dominant, essentially deaths from COVID and transmission rates. They're really all that matters. And all the other health, economic and social effects get overlooked. Now, I know that security and liberty are not always traded off against one another. You can't have freedom without some safety, for example. But it does feel like liberties have become increasingly a luxury good. And where are the checks and balances to this? One thing I do know 
is that we need a distribution of different people across society. People that are willing to argue and engage with one another and to be respectful of each other's opinions. I'm really concerned by the groupthink that exists at the minute. I can't believe that there's such a consensus at a time of great uncertainty. This must mean that some sensible voices are being drowned out. We need to flush out these arguments and you know what, right now, we could do with a few more libertarians. That was the Duck Rabbit Podcast. I'm Paul Dolan and it was a Mother Come Quickly production. This podcast is part of the Shaping the Post-COVID World Initiative at the LSE. Okay, well, looking ahead to episode three then, we're going to be discussing one of the most polarising questions of the day. Should I be allowed to say whatever I want? Join me and Rory and my guests next time when we discuss freedom of speech and council culture. And please do get in touch via Twitter at Prof Paul Dolan. It is really, really fascinating to hear what people make of all of this.